You know, one of my favorite uh, trilogies, movies, that I like to watch is Lord of the Rings. And um, it's, I think the Lord of the Rings is much better than uh, the Hobbit trilogy, plus one, because they had four of them. But uh, it's a battle of good versus evil. As you see, Frodo and three of his companions set out on a journey across Middle Earth to destroy a ring. The one ring to rule them all, uh, all the way to Mount Doom. And it's a journey that would take them on some pretty exciting adventures, uh, some very dangerous adventures. But in the Lord of the Rings movies, there's a specific point, uh, and it's kind of at the end of movie two, in which you have a breaking point in one of the main characters named Frodo. Frodo Baggins, he's the ring bearer. He has chosen to take this uh, ring to Mount Doom, and he is starting to feel the weight of the ring. And he's starting to get to a point to where he wants to give up. Uh, And he's ready to hand the ring over to this wraith. And for all of you non-nerds out there in the crowd, uh, that's one of the bad guys, okay? That's who's going to take it back to uh, the other bad guy. So here we go. But his friend Sam, in this moment of weakness for Frodo, tackles him to the ground as he's trying to hand this ring over. And, of course, Frodo uh, tries to uh, kill Sam in this moment. But he comes back to his senses. And he looks at his friend and he says this. He says, I can't do this, Sam. And Sam says this. Sam says, I know. He says, by all rights, we shouldn't even be here, but we are. He says, it's like in the great stories, Mr. Frodo, the ones that really mattered, full of darkness and danger they were. And sometimes you didn't know, you didn't want to know how, how, you didn't want to know the end, because how could the end be happy? How could the world go back to the way it was when so much bad has happened? But in the end... It's only a passing thing, this shadow. Even darkness must pass. A new day will come. And when the sun shines, it will shine out the clearer. Folk in those stories had a lot of chances of turning back. Only they didn't. They kept going because they were holding on to something. And of course, Frodo says, and what's that, Sam? And Sam says, there's some good in this world, Mr. Frodo, and it's worth fighting for. You know, Hollywood has made a fortune on movies, good versus evil. Um, Movies like Star Wars, Harry Potter, Lord of the Rings, Transformers, uh, all the Marvel movies, all 22 of them, in which this afternoon I just saw that AMC is going to do a marathon where all 22 Uh, of the Marvel movies will be shown back to back before this last one comes out. So they're really excited about that. And then, of course, for all of you uh, more mature people, you can throw in some Indiana Jones, right? Uh, Maybe a little bit of James Bond. But our culture loves the story of good versus evil. And our culture really loves seeing the good guy win. That's why we go to the movies. That's why most of the movies in the top 25 grossing movies of all time include a theme of good versus evil. 
If you've been following along in Daniel through this series, um, sometimes we're going to see that God's people do not listen. Okay, And when that happens, uh, they chase after their own way. They start doing things their own way. And God chooses to punish them uh, in this case. And in this case of Daniel and his friends, it comes in the form of making, making a pagan king the most powerful man on the earth. And Daniel and his friends are slaves to this pagan king. And uh, we will see that God will continue to be with them every step of the way. So uh, as we've seen the previous two lessons, uh, let's look at the theme of the book of Daniel. The theme of the book of Daniel is without a doubt the sovereignty of God in all things. He is sovereign over the big things like international powers. He is sovereign over the small things. He is sovereign over history and is sovereign concerning the future. Our God is sovereign. And today we're going to be in chapter 3. And as we left off last week, uh, you can recall that Daniel, uh, King Nebuchadnezzar had had a dream. A dream that disturbed him. And he wanted to know what it meant. So he gathered all the wise men, including uh, Daniel and his friends, eventually to interpret this dream. Daniel, along with God's help, was able to do that. And we see that the head of gold was uh, Babylon. And King Nebuchadnezzar is going to take that to heart. And we're going to see how chapter 3 plays out as he takes this dream and he runs with it. So the big idea of chapter 3 is if God is for us, we can have the courage to resist false gods and proclaim the one true God. If God is for us, we can have courage to resist false gods and proclaim the one true God. So let's start reading in verse 1. King Nebuchadnezzar made an image of gold, whose height was 60 cubits and its breadth 6 cubits. He set it up on the plain of Dura in the province of Babylon. Then King Nebuchadnezzar sent together the satraps, the prefects, the governors, the counselors, the treasurers, the justices, the magistrates, and all the officials in the provinces to come to the dedication of the image of King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. Then the satraps, the prefects, the governors, the counselors, the treasurers, the justices, the magistrates, and all the officials of the provinces gathered for the dedication of the image of the King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. And they stood before the image that Nebuchadnezzar had set up. And the herald proclaimed aloud, You are commanded, O people, nations, and languages, that when you hear the sound of the horn, the pipe, lyre, trigon, harp, bagpipe, and every kind of music, you are to fall down and worship the golden image that King Nebuchadnezzar has set up. And whoever does not fall down and worship shall immediately be cast into the burning, fiery furnace. Therefore, as soon as all the people heard the sound of the horn and the pipe and the lyre and the trigon, the harp, the bagpipe, and every kind of music, all the peoples, nations, and languages fell down and worshipped the golden image that King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. So at the end of chapter 2... 
we see that King Nebuchadnezzar gives God praise for being able to interpret his dream. Uh, but it wouldn't last very long. And in this dream, when he had this dream and Daniel told him the interpretation of this dream, you could only imagine that King Nebuchadnezzar thought about this dream often. He thought about him being the head of gold. He thought about being the most precious, the most, uh, the, the most mighty of all of the parts of the statue that he was. And it must have consumed him. And knowing the interpretation must have consumed his thoughts even more. And he gave God the credit. However, he wanted uh, all of the fame and all the glory and all of the um, comparisons and all the... He wanted all of the glory for that statue now. He didn't want to just be the head of gold and then someone else come after him. He wanted it now, and he wanted it to be established now, and he wanted it to last forever. Knowing in that, he builds this statue, and it doesn't just have a head of gold. The entire statue is made out of gold. Now, just for comparison's sake, um, the statue would have been about 90 feet tall and 9 feet wide. Gold-plated from head to toe, and not just the head, like I said, but the entire statue. If you look at the picture behind me, you see the Statue of Liberty. From the bottom of the toes to the top of the head of the Statue of Liberty, it's 111 feet. Um, So you can get an idea of how tall this statue was. And to think about the Babylonians creating this for him, for people to see from all around, to come and to bow down and worship this statue. And if not, he was going to throw you into the fire. And that leads us to the first point of this chapter. Number one, God's people will be confronted with idols of this world. You know, it's very difficult for us to relate to these guys in that we do not uh, get asked to bow down to a statue or bow down or show allegiance to any type of statue But we do have idols in our modern day Western culture. Uh, Some come very quietly and without drawing much attention. I think these can come in the forms of pride or lust. Others may come very publicly uh, and possibly put on display like our wealth, our health, uh, maybe our children, maybe our success. But what happens when that happens? What will we do? When we are confronted with idols in our culture today, how do we respond to those things? When things become more God to us than the one true God, how do we respond in that moment? Dale Davis said this. This story is first commandment material. The writer holds before you this episode because he wants you to make the same response as Daniel's friends. I will believe and obey the first commandment, even if it kills me. And guess what? It just might. You know, we are not exiles, exiles in Babylon, right? But we are indeed exiles in, the, in, in a foreign land where we live today. And idols can be very enticing. Idols by themselves necessarily aren't a bad thing. 
And let me share what I mean. I love college football. Okay, I go to a college football rivalry game every year. Uh, I enjoy watching college football. I love when uh, August gets here because college football is about to start. I spend every Saturday very religiously watching college game day. I love college football. However, if I were to worship that more than the one true God, we would have a problem. But uh, I enjoy college football, and I'm going to continue going to games, and I'm going to continue this rivalry tradition I have with a few buddies. I enjoy it. In its right place, it's okay. When I put it above God or anything else above God, then we have a problem. We will be confronted by idols in this world, and they take many forms. And we need to ask ourselves, what will we do? Which leads me to our second point. Number two, God's people will be criticized by the people of this world. They will be criticized by the people of this world. Let's continue reading in verse 8. Therefore, at that time, certain Chaldeans came forward and maliciously accused the Jews. They declared to King Nebuchadnezzar, O king, live forever. You, O king, have made a decree that every man who hears the sound of the horn, the pipe, the lyre, the trigon, trigon, harp, bagpipe, and every kind of music shall fall down and worship the golden image. And whoever does not fall down and worship shall be cast into the burning fiery furnace. Well, there are certain Jews from whom you have appointed over the affairs of the province of Babylon, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. These men, O king, pay no attention to you. They do not serve your gods or worship the golden image that you have set up. You know, honoring and obeying God is not always popular. And it will leave you, it will not leave you popular in this world. And what I think about, I don't think we fully understand this like many of our brothers and sisters around the world. But it, it's a reality that when we take a stand for Christ, it often does not leave us very popular. Peter tells us in Acts chapter 5, we must obey God rather than people. And this is going to be a reality to these guys. We talked Sunday about John the Baptist And how he took a very uh, specific stand for a biblical worldview. And as he took that stand for what was true, eventually it cost him his head. Okay, We don't see a miraculous story like we're about to read from these three guys. It cost him his head. But guess who gets the glory for that? God. And we're going to see that in a moment. How God is going to get the glory out of this uh, situation. So when it came time for these men to bow down and to worship the golden image, they stood tall. And it made the other officials furious. And I don't want us to forget that these are the very guys, Daniel and these three guys, are who saved all the wise men of Babylon. The very men who went up to accuse them to King Nebuchadnezzar were the guys that they had just saved their lives the previous chapter. The same wordage, the Chaldeans came forward and maliciously accused the Jews. 
This maliciously accused the Jews is the same wording that we get in the book of Esther. When one uh, Haman stepped forward to maliciously accuse the Jews. Literally, uh, it means they ate them to pieces. They sank their teeth into them. So they did not have any um, well feelings towards these guys. As a matter of fact, they did not just want them to come down from their lofty positions that King Nebuchadnezzar had gave them. They wanted to get rid of them, dispose of them, kill them however they needed to. They had harm intended on their mind. And what better way to get this point across than doing a little kissing up? Oh, may, may the king live forever, verse 9. And then they go into an explanation of, Oh, king, we know that you made a decree. That you, in Verse 12, we know that these guys that you have appointed to manage Babylon, they ignore you, they don't serve your gods, they don't worship your statue. These are your guys, Nebuchadnezzar. These are your boys, and they don't respect you. So you've made this decree. I want you to deal with it. And I don't want you to miss something really cool. This is, I've never, um, this, the first time studying this scripture, I've noticed this. But to flip back over to chapter 2, verse 21. They say this. He changes times and seasons. He removes kings and sets up kings. He gives wisdom to the wise and knowledge to those who have understanding. Now flip back over to chapter 3. <clears throat> and you will see this term set up used eight different times in chapter 3. Nebuchadnezzar is trying to play the role that God plays. He's trying to be God. He wants to be God. He wants the control. He wants to be that kingdom that never ends. And he is setting up this showdown with God that we all know he's going to lose. So, number three. God's people will be challenged to worship the gods of this world. God's people will be challenged to worship the gods of this world. Let's continue to read. Verse 13. Then Nebuchadnezzar, in furious rage, commanded that Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego be brought. So they brought these men before the king. Nebuchadnezzar answered and said to them, Is it true, O Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, that you do not serve my gods or worship the golden image that I have set up? There's that set up word again. Now if you are ready, when you hear the sound of the horn, the pipe, the lyre, the trigon, the harp, the bagpipe, and every kind of music to fall down and to worship the image that I have made well and good. But if you do not worship, you shall immediately be cast into the burning fiery furnace. And who is the God who will deliver you out of my hands? You know, it takes a lot of courage takes a lot of guts uh, not to compromise. Uh, and your minds have to be made up long before temptation comes. And Nebuchadnezzar had set this golden image up to glorify himself, to unify his kingdom. And it was going to be great. And everything was going as planned until 
until these three guys chose to stand instead of taking a knee. So where was Daniel in this story? Uh, There's really no uh, verse that explains where Daniel is. Uh, I kind of think he's probably off doing something in the kingdom because I think that if he were here, he would have been standing right there with them. But he's not there with them at this moment. So these guys, and you can imagine that Daniel probably was their leader, right? And they were having to take this stand uh, without him there. And King Nebuchadnezzar must have liked these guys because he actually gives them a second chance. He lets them know all the guidelines again. He lets them know what would happen if they didn't bow again. You know, in most situations when you think about a king and he makes a decree, there's not a second chance. It's either do it or you die. Do it or you die. And yet he's giving these guys a second chance. And he asked the question, and this question is key to this entire lesson. He says, who is the God who can rescue you out of my hands? Who can rescue you from my power? You have a faith in this God. But I'm telling you, I will kill you. And let's see what your God can do in this situation. You know, we do this. I think we often um, think of ourselves as better than we really are. Maybe we exalt, exalt ourselves beyond what we should. I think sometimes in our lives, um, we like to have our own destiny in our own hands. We like to have control. Um, we like to draw attention to who we are, who we know, what we have, or maybe what we've accomplished And this, I think, may be the exact same pride that King Nebuchadnezzar had. The same heart that King Nebuchadnezzar had. You know, I want to put myself in this story so bad. Uh, I talked about this Sunday in my Sunday school class. About how amazing some of these old stories are. And how if we were to put ourselves in those stories, it would just be amazing to see. And we talked about Joshua on Sunday and how... Amazing it must have seemed to see the river split and be able to walk across on dry land. And I think this exact thing about this story in Daniel, where these guys are come face to face with the most powerful man in the world, and he's telling them, I'm going to take you out, and there's not a God who can save you. What faith it must have taken. Uh... Who is the God who will deliver me from that situation? But I think first we must ask ourselves, who is the God who will deliver me from my own sin or my own pride or my own arrogance? Who will deliver me from myself? Uh, Flip over to Joshua chapter 4, speaking of Joshua. Joshua chapter 24. And this is not at the beginning of Joshua's campaign to take over the promised land. This is going to be at the end of Joshua's life. And he's going to give a plea or a reminder to the people that he, you know, he knows he's about to die and he's just going to plead with them. Verse 14, chapter 24, verse 14. It says, Now therefore fear the Lord. 
and serve him in sincerity and in faithfulness. Put away the gods that your father served beyond the river and in Egypt and serve the Lord. And if it is evil in your eyes to serve the Lord, choose this day whom you will serve. Whether the gods your father served in the region beyond the river or the God of the Amorites in whose land you dwell. But as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. You know, why would Joshua say that? I think Joshua is saying that. He's telling the guys, you know, you need to just pick a side and take a stand. You're wishy-washy about this. You worship Yahweh this day. You worship this idol the next day. Pick a side. Take a stand. And I think these guys in this situation, standing before King Nebuchadnezzar, I think they knew this verse by heart. Which led them to be courageous. It led to them, led to them being obedient to God. Uh, which leads us to number four. <clears throat> God's people must be courageous in the face of danger in this world. We have to be courageous. Let's continue reading in verse 16. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego answered and said to the king, O Nebuchadnezzar, we have no need to answer you in this matter. If this be so, our God whom we serve is able to deliver us from the burning fiery furnace, and he will deliver us out of your hand, O king. And then, of course, one of my favorite verses in the entire Bible, but if not, be it known to you, O king, that we will not serve your gods or worship the golden image that you have set up. You know, sometimes uh, God sends us to the nations to proclaim the gospel, to go and preach the good news of Jesus Christ. Well, sometimes, um, like here in Odessa, uh, God brings the nations to us. And God sends the nations uh, to these guys. I want you to note the crowd in verses 2, 3, 4, 7, and 29. All the nations from all the surrounding areas, they were about to hear what these three guys were about to say. And I want you to think about how embarrassing this must have been for old King Nebuchadnezzar. This was, these three guys who are in a lofty position in your court, and yet they're going to choose not to bow. All of us have come to bow, and these three guys who serve you choose to stand. And they're all going to see what's about to happen. And these guys tell the king, we don't need to give you an explanation. For them, the facts were clear. They were not going to bow down and worship. Their hearts were already made up on the issue, and they did not have to come up with a compromise. They didn't have to say to one another or come up with an idea of, okay, what we're going to do is we're going to go ahead and bow. In our hearts, we will be standing in our hearts, but with the knee, we will bow. Right? We're going to honor God. We're going to kneel, but we're going to be praying to God at that same time. That way we're good, right? We can be strong for God and then just go with the flow. They would not do that. They didn't have to come up with a compromise. They were going to remain faithful to God. They were going to take a stand for God. They knew God's power. They knew God's faithfulness. But they did not know God's plan or purpose. They had no clue how this was going to turn out in the end. 
They had faith that it would turn out in the end. And they say to him, Our God can deliver us from the fire. But even if he can't, we still will not bow down and worship your idols. So they proclaim, even if he does not rescue us, we will not serve you or the golden image that you have set up. My Bible study notes in my ESV Bible, uh, study Bible were really good. It says, there was no doubt in these three minds, three men's mind as to God's power to save them. Yet the way in which God would work out his plan for them in this situation was less clear. God's power is sometimes extended in dramatic ways to deliver his people, as when he parted the Red Sea for Israel on the way out of Egypt. But at other times, the same power is withheld, and his people are allowed to suffer. Here's another fill in the blank for you. Deliverance and rescue are not the issue, but confession and obedience are. Rescue is not the issue. Obedience is. Uh, There's a missionary. His name was Nate Saint. And he was a missionary to the Hurani people uh, of the Alca Indians in Ecuador. And his willingness to die for Jesus should not surprise us when we consider what he wrote in his journal. He wrote this. He says, the way I see it, we ought to be willing to die. In the military, we are taught that to obtain an objective, we had to be willing to be expendable. Missionaries must have the same expendability. And let's see where that leads us. Uh, Point number five. God's people can be confident. The Lord is with them no matter what happens in this world. We can be confident that God is with us. Let's continue reading in verse 19. Then Nebuchadnezzar was filled with fury, and the expression on his face was changed against Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. He ordered the furnace heated seven times more than it usually heated. And he ordered some of the mighty men of his army to bind Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego and to cast them into the burning, fiery furnace. Then these men were bound in their cloaks, their tunics, their hats, and their other garments, and they were thrown into the burning, fiery furnace. Because the king's order was urgent and the furnace was overheated, the flame of the fire killed those men who took up Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And these three men, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, fell bound into the burning, fiery furnace. Then King Nebuchadnezzar was astonished, and he rose up in haste. He declared to his counselors, Did we not cast three men bound into the fire? They answered and said to the king, True, O king. He answered and said, But I see four men unbound walking in the midst of the fire, and they are not hurt. And the appearance of the fourth is like a son of the gods. Then Nebuchadnezzar came near to the door of the burning fiery furnace He declared, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, servants of the Most High God, come out and come here. Then Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego came out of the fire, 
and the satraps, the prefects, the governors, and the king's counselors gathered together and saw that the fire had not had any power over the bodies of those men. The hair on the heads, the hair of their heads was not singed, their cloaks were not harmed, and no smell of fire had come upon them. Nebuchadnezzar answered and said, Blessed be the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, who has sent his angel and delivered his servants, who trusted in him, set aside the king's command, and yielded up their bodies rather than serve and worship any god except their own god. Therefore I make a decree. Any people, nation, or language that speaks anything against the god of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego shall be torn limb from limb, their houses laid in ruins, for there is no other God who is able to rescue in this way. Then the king promoted Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego into the province of Babylon. Nebuchadnezzar had the kilns fired up seven times hotter than normal. In other words, get it as hot as you can. I actually have a little experience with kilns myself. Not one big enough uh, that... Would have been as big as this. But at UTPB, I took some pottery classes when I was there. This is actually Tyler Mintz. Uh, he was in high school at the time. Um, one night he called and said, hey, let's go to Whataburger. I'm like, well, I can't. I'm babysitting a kiln. And babysitting a kiln meant that you were firing pottery inside of this oven. And you had to wait for the temperature to get up to a certain degree. And there were things you had to do all night long. So this was about a six to eight hour process. So you can see the fire shooting out of the kiln uh, when you remove a brick. This is what was called a peephole. This would let us to see uh, parts that were melting down to see what the temperature was. This also allowed us to add salt into the kiln, which made a really nice layer on the pottery. Let me just say this. I show you those pictures for this reason. Uh, This was a very small kiln, about six by six by six. So it was a big cube. It was not that big. We didn't get to put that much pottery in it. And we would get the temperature so hot that we would have to put on helmets with glass visors to look inside of those peepholes because the fl- the heat coming just from that brick hole was enough to just send your hair. We had to wear gloves because if you didn't put on gloves, you would lose all the hair on your arm. It was hot. And I can only imagine that this oven or this kiln that Nebuchadnezzar chose to heat up seven times hotter than normal. So hot that the very men that threw these guys into the uh, oven, fiery furnace, were killed. They They were killed. They were burnt up. So I tell you that because I stank to high heaven after I fired pottery at UTPB. I smelled like smoke. We had to wear all these uh, gloves and things for protection. And this was a six by six kiln. And yet, in this story, we see these guys thrown in this fiery furnace. And it was so hot that it killed the guys throwing them in. And yet, their hair was not burnt. Their clothes that they were wearing were not burnt. They were up walking around. No damage done. Uh, 
And they didn't even smell like fire once they came out of the the, uh, fiery furnace. Nebuchadnezzar had in his mind before he threw these guys in that I have whipped Israel before. I have defeated their God before. And I have no doubt that we can defeat them again. And as he chooses to throw these guys into the fiery furnace, he thought, all of my buddies are about to see this and cremation is going to wipe this out. And then it happened. He jumps up. Didn't we throw three men into the fire? Absolutely. They didn't die. They weren't tied up anymore. And now there were four guys walking around in the fire. And one had the appearance like the son of gods. Verse 28, King Nebuchadnezzar calls the fourth an angel. And he invites Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego to come out of the fire. And the fire had no effect. And of course, because of this, the king sets a new decree. Anyone who spoke against the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego shall be torn limb from limb and their houses laid in ruins. And, they, and again, once again, these guys are faced with death. They escape the death and they're given promotions. God chooses to promote them within the kingdom. I want you to imagine the nations that were represented at this event, that saw what the Most High God could accomplish. And what they did is they went home and told this story to their people. Think of the nations that heard about Yahweh, who heard about the Most High God, because these three guys were willing to take a stand and not bend the knee. So how were Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego able to stand Firm in their faith. How were they able to remain faithful to God in this situation? Number one. They had to know that God is sovereign. Nothing is clearer in this moment than their response when they say. The God we serve is able to save us. That is faith in the furnace. And their reverence and their fear to the Most High God, rather than to the most powerful man on the planet at the time, was evidence, and they got to shine bright for all the nations to see. Ecclesiastes chapter 12 says this. Solomon could not have said it any better. The end of the matter is this. All has been heard. Fear God and keep His commandments. For this is the whole duty of man. Fear God and obey. After all that Solomon learned and all of Solomon's wisdom, after all that Solomon had said, he came to the end and he wrote, the end of the matter is this, fear God and do what he says. You know, if I could teach that to anyone, that's what I would teach. Fear God and do what he tells us to do. If you do those things, guess what? We're going to be more and more like Jesus every single day. So you had to know that God was sovereign. These guys had to know that so that they could stand firm. Number two, they had to know the scriptures. These guys were able to take a stand because they knew the word. And they didn't just know the word, they lived by the word. 
They knew what the Bible had to say about obedience. They knew what the scriptures had to say when they, his people lived in disobedience. And they were reminded daily because of their uh, being in slavery and exile of what happens when you choose to be unfaithful to God. Even in God's faithfulness, when you are having the repercussions of an unfaithfulness of people before you, God is still with them. But they had to know the scriptures. And in order for us to stand firm, we have to know the word. Let's fast forward to Jesus. When we think about Jesus and his temptation in the wilderness, he quoted scripture. When Satan came at him with temptation, he quoted scripture. When Satan uh, threw temptation at him with scripture, he quoted scripture. That's what Jesus chose to use, and that's what we should choose to use as well. We have to know what God's word has to say. Number three, we have to be willing to die for our convictions. Paul says to live is Christ and to die is gain. Paul knew that living for Jesus was awesome, and we should, but he also knew that when we die, we get more of Jesus. I know that a lot of us, we don't like to think about dying. When we think about dying, you're just like, oh, that's kind of morbid. I don't want to think about it. But we have to think about the fact that on this earth, we get to serve Jesus. But guess what? If we die, we get all of Jesus. And our uh, life of servitude to him would be complete. We could be made holy in his sight. How awesome is that going to be? But we should be able to take a stand if we're called to. We ought to be ready to go to the furnace if that's what God calls us to do. I know that's so out of our thought process living in America. But when trials come, when people, when we're faced to take challenge to take a stand for whatever reason we need to, we should be able to stand and we should be uh, willing to die for our convictions. So in this whole process, Nebuchadnezzar experienced conviction. Uh, when he met the Most High God. But conviction is not conversion. And we're going to talk more about that next week. So just a little bit of uh, tidbit for you to come back next week as we talk about not conviction but conversion. So how does this text point us to Jesus? Um, Jesus is Emmanuel. He is God with us. Boyce said it like this. It is not difficult to know who that fourth person was. He was Jesus Christ in the pre-incarnate form. Perhaps the form he was when he appeared to Abraham before the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah. Or in which he wrestled Jacob beside the brook of Jabbok. It is a vivid portrayal of the fact that God stands with his people in their trouble. And Nebuchadnezzar looked in the fiery furnace. He saw four men, not three. And the fourth, he said, looked like the son of God's. So that fourth person, I think, was Jesus. It was Emmanuel. It was God with us. Isaiah 43, 2 says this. It says, I will be with you when you pass through the waters. When you pass through the rivers, they will not overwhelm you. They will not scorch you when you walk through the fire. And the flame will not burn you. Love this little quote by Charles Spurgeon. He says, Beloved, you must go into the furnace if you, if you would have the nearest and dearest dealings with Christ Jesus. And these guys did just that. You know, we started off talking uh, tonight about Lord of the Rings. 
And if you've never seen Lord of the Rings, you should definitely go see Lord of the Rings. It's good stuff. And if you don't like uh, orcs and that type of stuff, yeah, it's probably not your thing. But it's a good movie. We talked about old Sam and Frodo uh, and how they were looking forward to the end of the story when this shadow would be gone. Uh, and he didn't want to know how it was going to end because how could the end be happy? Well, the truth is we do know the end of the story. Um, we do know that in Christ, we have a very happy ending. This darkness, uh, these idols that we experience in this world, it's a passing thing. And someday, uh, it will all go back to the way that God intended for it to be. And every day that we are uh, here on this earth, exiles on this planet, we have an enormous opportunity, just like Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, to shine bright for Jesus we have the ability to take a stand for Jesus. And that is exactly why we keep going. That's exactly why uh, we remain here and we remain faithful to God until he takes us home, until he makes that complete. Uh, those guys saw that it was worth fighting for. And those guys saw that it was worth taking a stand for. And I hope you do as well. Let's pray.